Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. It's true, he is, um, he is so good. And uh, he's, just, he's just so different than we are. He's, he's not like us. He's... We have to change the way that we think to adjust to who he is, because he's so different. Uh, you know, his response to Adam and Eve sinning in the garden, completely changing the course of humanity, breaking, so to speak, this perfection that he placed them in, is to come to them, seek them out, and make a covering for their sin, and make a promise for humanity, of the restoration of all things. That's his response. He, he's, he's just so much better than we could make up. It, it's one of the reasons that I have such confidence in the gospel is because I don't know that a man, given his wildest imaginations, could invent a God as good as him. I really don't. Like, it, 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 the gospel is so good that it takes faith to believe it. It's so far beyond the ability that I would have to come. If someone said, why don't you go ahead and just create a God, make him as good as you can. I couldn't imagine a God as good as him. I couldn't imagine a God who would send his son to die on a cross, who would see my life. And, and, and not like, well, once I started acting, he says, while we were yet in sin, he sent his son. It, it wasn't like he, he was in heaven and he said, you know, they're really trying to change. Let me help them. I was going the opposite way. I was living in complete disregard and violation to what I was created for and to who he had called me to be. Living at the expense of other people. Living my life for me at the expense of anyone who would let me. And he looks at me and sees me in that place and says, I'll send my son to die for him. My perfect son. I'll trade his life. It's worth it to me. I couldn't make that up. I couldn't even come close. He's so much better than we ever could imagine. We have to actually adjust the way that we think about goodness to try to understand and believe and see the goodness of God. Um, I, I just want to I want to encourage you that the promises of God are not for everybody else because your situation or your circumstances make them not for you. I want you to be careful that when you hear the word of God preached, that you don't imagine it could be true for fill in the blank with these different people that you see and you look up to or you know, or, and, and, but allow something in your life to change the way you hear them to the point where you disqualify yourself from being worthy to receive or from being able to receive or, or where you just sometimes we just get to this place in our lives where honestly we just start thinking about the goodness of God and we because we feel like we know ourselves will actually disqualify ourselves from being who God's talking about in his word when he makes these promises and can I just like like let me set your mind at ease you are completely unworthy for, the, for, for, for everything that God's promised in his word, except for and apart from this one thing, that he calls you worthy and made you worthy by the sacrifice of his son. 
And so when it talks about things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, one of those things that we're, that we're to tear down with truth is this lie that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And that would be that, that I know something about me that he didn't know when he made that promise over my life. As if there's something that when God spoke this to be true over me, over you, over all of us, when he said for my people, and he makes these huge general statements of who he is and who he'll be for his people and the way that life should be for us. We read in the word, you can find his will. We talked about this last week. You can find his will so clearly stated in his word for his people. It's not this mysterious, ethereal thing out there that one day maybe when we get to heaven, we'll look back and go, whoa, that was your will. And there will be things that we don't understand here in the search. But I'm saying like the general will of God for his people is knowable. Paul said, since I first heard about your salvation, I've been praying, I haven't stopped praying that you would know the will of God for your life. Why is he wasting his time praying for this unless he believed that it was something that they could know? And maybe he thought it was something they could know because it was something that he knew for his own life. And he believed that God's not a respecter of persons. And if God would show him his will for his life, he would show anyone who would call upon his name, who would come to him and seek after him, who would say, God, I want to know your will for my life. You can find it so clearly stated in the word when you hear his desire in his heart for humanity. You can find it in the beginning in the garden. You can see why he created man and what he desired from the very beginning, just by looking at the relationship he had with Adam and Eve, undefiled by sin. And you can see his heart to restore that relationship immediately when man sins. It's why he made the covering of skin, right? Because we talked about this, right? That because man sins and realizes, oh no, I'm naked. And suddenly, for the first time ever, he's self-conscious. He sees something wrong with himself, something that he doesn't like. What do we do when we see something wrong that we don't like? We hide. So first he makes a covering to hide that, and then he finds a position behind a tree to hide himself from the one. It's, it's, it's not just Adam and Eve that do this. I know a guy that was prone to when he did something wrong, want to hide. Want to hide it from people, want to hide from God. And God comes and he walks in the garden and he sees that can you imagine how, how silly it must have seemed for God? He speaks the trees into existence. He forms man and breathes his life into him. And then the one he created for relationship is hiding behind the thing he spoke into existence, covering himself with the leaves of the thing that he spoke into existence. And he sees that, that man is hiding, and so he realizes if the covering that they made with their own hands was good enough, they would be standing here and they wouldn't be ashamed, and they wouldn't be trying to hide. But you know as well as I do that our own covering for the things we've done wrong can never allow us to stand before a holy God. We wouldn't have that confidence to come before him. And he looks and he says, they're self-conscious. They're sin-conscious. They don't have confidence to come before me like they used to when I come walking into the garden. I haven't changed. They have. And this covering that they've made with their own hands, this thing that they've done to cover up what they've done wrong, it's not working. Because if it was, they wouldn't be hiding behind a tree. So I'll make a covering for their sins so that they'll understand they can stand in my presence, not because of what they've done, but because of what I've done. And blood is shed, and a covering's made. And then he promises there will be one who will come who will be the covering for every sin. So that every man could come before him boldly, and stand before him with confidence 
not hiding, not running behind trees, standing in his presence and knowing I can stand here confidently because the thing that covers me was made by the God I'm approaching. Um, Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Is everybody awake this morning? I know it's rainy and dreary outside, but it's not in here, so tell your faces. (laughs) It's okay to smile in church. We put in this lightning-proof roof so that if you do something like smile or laugh, God can't zap you. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 4, turn to verse 4. It says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you seem to, may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, they here is talking about the children of Israel, God's people. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that rest, just as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. And it goes on, but I'm going to stop there because the the thing I want to talk about this morning is is, uh, I mentioned it last week and I mentioned it a few times before about this thing of mixing faith with the hearing of 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 the good news, of the gospel and I was reading the, these, these chapters a few weeks ago, probably three weeks ago, I was reading through Hebrews, and I came to this part, and I saw where, where he makes this distinction and, and, and ties these things together, where he says, they heard the good news told to them just like we did. In other words, there was promises of God that were made to the children of Israel, the same way there's been promises of God made to us. He says, but, but they didn't, it profited them nothing. It did no good for them. Because it wasn't united with faith in the ones who heard. In other words, there was no faith in what they heard. And so they heard these things, and, and, and like so many people, you, you know a promise of God, but yet it doesn't seem to be profiting some in your life. You, you don't see the fruit of that in your life. And he's explaining why, and he says it's because they didn't mix faith. They didn't unite faith with what they heard. It, it didn't actually change anything. Hearing this promise maybe made them feel good in the moment, but it didn't actually change the way they looked, the way they saw, and the way that they lived. And, and so then, but a little bit later, he calls it and he says, he says, for they had the good news preached to them, but they failed to, uh, to enter because of disobedience. In other versions say because of unbelief. And I realized that, that, that it's not a light thing to God for him to give revelation and then for us to just continue to live our lives the way that we lived them prior to the revelation coming, he actually calls it disobedience. Because with the revelation comes an expectation from God that what he's revealed to you will actually make a difference in your life and that it will actually change something because he doesn't give his pearls before swine. Remember when he instructed us that in the word, he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. God's never calling us to do something that he hasn't already been willing to do himself. So when he says, come and lay down your life, it's because he came and laid his down. Jesus came and gets baptized by John. Why? Because he's going to call us to be baptized. 
He kneels down and, and, and towels off and washes the feet of the disciples and even the one who's going to betray him because he's going to call us to kneel down and serve people, even those who will mistreat us in this life. There's nothing that he calls us to that he himself hasn't subjected himself to. And so when he says for us not to give something of great value to someone or something that can't value it properly, a pig has no use for a pearl. Swine of no use. This is a trampled under feet. It could be the same. You could give a, a pig a rock. You could give a pig a pearl. It's going to do the same thing for the pig because it has no value for it. It means nothing to it. It does nothing for them. And so when he gives his word to us, he expects that we can value and actually take that word and allow it to do something in us and put our faith or mix faith with what we've heard to the point where it actually changes the way that we live. And it's not like, well, that's for super Christians. See, he didn't give bonus points to the people who did. They didn't get gold stars. And the ones who didn't, he just said, well, you know, you're only human. It actually cost them something that was his heart for them. And this is that thing where I wanted to talk about this last week, and I didn't know I'd be talking about this this week, but if we don't understand that, that God's heart and desire for us does not automatically mean that it will happen, we'll live our lives just going through, floating through this stream, thinking, well, whatever God wants to happen will happen. But God so clearly says here, I wanted them to come into my rest. I wanted them to enter into this place, and I promised them and I told them that it was for them. I wanted to give them this land. I wanted to give every person that I brought out of Israel a place in the promised land, a land that flows with milk and honey, where they would live in cities that they didn't build. They would drink from wells that they didn't dig. They would pick the fruit of vineyards that they never planted. I, that was my heart for them. I declared that to them when I brought them out. But somewhere between God's heart and his declaration and the actual happening, there was this thing there, and he calls it disobedience that caused some of them to not be able to enter in. So knowing God's heart for you is one thing. That, that's, that's huge. Like, I'm, I'm downplaying that. Revel, seeking revelation of the Father's heart for you. What are his promises over your life? What are his desires for you? That's amazing, and that's awesome. But with that comes this responsibility that now that I know this, it has to actually change the way that I live. And if I don't, it's not like he says, well, you know, you missed out on the extra credit. This was the thing that struck me was, he actually equates not living by what he spoke in this revelation as disobedience and unbelief. And it costs them. And I, I, I started thinking about my own life and thinking, you know, if, if this warning is in Hebrews for us, a lot of times people ask me, they say, I mean, you preach out of the Old Testament as much as you do the New Testament. I think it's because the Old Testament always gives us such a vivid picture of what we're told in the New. It makes it just come alive to us. And, and so in Hebrews here, when he's, when he's talking, he uses this example, but then he brings this into today, into the New Covenant. and says, listen, don't let it happen to you like it happened to them. Don't let what happened to them in the desert happen to you now. Because you too have promises of God that have been made. You too have a desire of God for you to enter into this place in him. He's made all kinds of promises to you. And yet if you don't actually unite faith with what you've heard, then, then it actually will profit you nothing. But even worse than profiting you nothing, it's this thing called disobedience and unbelief. 
because it's not optional. It's not like God says, all right, I'm going to throw out some promises to you. Believe what you want. Reject what you don't. And it's okay. He values his word even above his own name. So when he speaks something, that means there's high value on it. And he expects that we would value it the way he values it. That we would value it above anything else because it's the word of God. It's what he spoke. And we have this written record in front of us. You can open the word of God and you can see his heart for you. You can see his promises for you. You can see what he's declared. And then you can actually let that change the way that you see things and change the way that you live so that when you walk into a situation, rather than living by what you see, you live by what's already in your heart before you walk into it. That's the essence of faith, right? This is the faith is the, is the, is the evidence of, of things unseen. It, it's, it's this thing that says, listen, you can't see this thing in me, but you'll see the evidence in my life. It'll cause you to question. It'll cause you to wonder. It'll cause you to, to, to maybe look at me and think, I wonder what's wrong with him. Because for some people, when you're living by faith in what God spoke rather than by faith of what you're seeing, they actually see it as a problem. And they think the only way that you could live that way is because you're not seeing what they're seeing. But the truth is you live that way because they don't see what you see. And if the people of the Old Testament could do this, that didn't have the Spirit of God living inside of them, that had a covenant that was lesser than the covenant that we have, that didn't have the ability to open a book and go, oh yeah, this is what he said. Think about it. They would have loved to have what we have. To be able to go back and say, okay, this is what he said. This is what he promised. This is what he said was going to happen. They, they had the words passed down to them from people to people. They had stories that were told. This is how most of these things were passed down. It was very few people who could actually open a scroll and read from it. It was a privileged thing to do that. Most people had to have things told to them over and over again by people. And they would hear these things, but they didn't actually let it change them. And so, um, so let's see. I'm going to jump ahead here real quick. Um, so... So God told the children of Israel, when he takes them out of Egypt, he says, I'm taking you to a land that I'm going to give you. So he's made a declaration. He already promised Abraham. He promised from generation to generation that I'm going to give you this land. And now it's time that he's actually going to bring them out of Israel, bring them out of bondage, out of captivity, and bring them in, and they're going to possess this land. He says to them over and over again, I'm taking you to a land that I'm giving to you that you should possess it. He tells them, I'm going to drive the people out. No, you go drive them out. He says, I'll go ahead of you like a hornet and drive them out. But not all at once. I'll drive them out only to the ability that you are able to sustain it. In other words, I'm not going to just go in and clear the entire land and let everybody in the land run away so that every, so that until you're ready to actually possess what I want you to have. There's times where there's an enemy living in your house and God's just using that so that the house doesn't get dirty and overrun and the weeds don't grow up. Don't get angry at God. Just keep trusting him and believing that when the time comes where you're ready to possess what God has for you, the enemy will run because God will drive him out. There's time where you look around, you see people living in things that you think are for you. It's okay. Just let them keep tending to the promise because what they may not understand is while they're watering that vineyard, you're going to eat the fruit. This is what God said. He said, I'm not going to drive them all out. Otherwise, the, the land and the beasts will overtake and the thorns and thistles will. In other words, there's beautiful vineyards there right now. I'm not going to drive the enemy out. I'm going to use the enemy to actually prepare something for you. And when the day comes that you're ready to possess it, I'll drive the enemy out and then you'll walk in and there won't be a single weed to pick because the day before you possessed it, the enemy did. And God was using him to keep a promise ready for you. 
That's amazing to think about. These are the promises these people had over and over again. And, and God would show them his faithfulness over and over and over and over again. And he was never doing these things just so that they had another cool story to tell. It was so that the way that they saw, the way that they thought, and what they carried in their heart would actually change so that the next time they found themselves in a similar situation, rather than panicking and running around saying, oh no, what are we going to do now? They would remember the faithfulness of God. They would remember the promise, and it would change the way they looked at the problem that was in front of them. That was his heart. That was his intention. That was his desire. Desire. And so he's talking to them in, um, in, in Leviticus, and he's laying out all the rules for them, and he tells them all these different things they have to do, and then he comes to, in Leviticus 20, um, chapter 20, verse 23, he says this, he's talking about when they get into the, to the promised land, he says, moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you. I mean, it was this common language that God used with them. It wasn't like he just one time said, oh, and I'm going to drive them out. I mean, it wasn't like he was like wanting them to not know and to be afraid and to, you know, if I don't tell them I'm going to drive them out, then they'll really have to lean on me. He didn't even go that far. He just constantly would tell them, I'm going to drive the people out. I'm going to give you the land. You should possess this land. It, the promises of God that he made to them were so clear. And there's so many things that God's promised to us and that is said to us in his word that are so clear. And yet we haven't lived in it, and so we blame him, or we say, well, I guess it doesn't mean. These people who, who couldn't enter into the promised land could not look back at the word of God that came to them and say, well, I guess God didn't mean that he was going to drive them out for us. I guess God doesn't do that anymore. I guess I wasn't who he was talking about when he said that my people shall possess the land. No, you were who he was talking about. And he promised to drive them out, and he's still going to do that. There was a person in there that was changeable, and it wasn't him. It was you that was supposed to actually believe what he said and then live your life as though what he said was more true than anything you would ever see. And it's still that way. This is why if you know the old, it brings the new to, to, to life, and it, and it gives us an example of what he's talking about. He makes this reference. He says, be careful this doesn't happen to you. In other words, this can still happen today. You can still know a promise of God and live your life as though he didn't make it and be swayed and be afraid and be confused and live your life according to everything but the promise of God if you choose to. And that's why there's a warning not to. And so he says, um, sorry, he says, I will drive them out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who separated you from the peoples. So if anyone hasn't heard the stories passed down from generation to generation of what God promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, if anyone hasn't heard what God said to Moses, what God said to Aaron, if anyone hasn't heard what God spoke to the elders, if anyone hasn't at this point in the journey, if, if somehow somebody managed to not know what God's heart was for his people and to not know that he was bringing them to this land, he spells it out to them so clearly that you would have to hire somebody to screw this up for you. You'd have to tell them, could you please confuse me because I don't want to understand this. He says, this is what he says right here. Hence, I have said to you, he's reminding them, so this is what I've said to you. So this isn't even a new thing for anybody. It's a reminder. Hence, I've said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm the Lord your God who separated from you, 
you from the people. And so, a little while later, in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, this is after God said this, this is after God's done these things, God says, Moses, I want you to take a person from each of the tribes, and I want you to send them into the land to spy it out. Into what land? Into the land that God said, I'm going to give to you to possess. Into the one that he said, I myself am giving this to you. I'm going to drive the people out. I'm going to make sure. And he says, and you are to possess it. It's, it's not even like it was an optional thing. It wasn't like he said, hey, guys, if you want, I have this piece of land. It's pretty awesome. There's milk and honey. If you want it. You no, know, he said, this is my desire, my heart for you. You are to possess it. Like now it's gone beyond just like a good idea and it's actually come into the realm of a commandment of God that he spoke to them that this is something they are to do. They are to possess this land. And so he comes to Moses and he says, um, he says, I want you to take, uh, it says, and the Lord said to, spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so they can spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribe, every one a leader among them. I mean, at this point, it's getting to be like, okay, Lord, we get it. You're giving us the land, you would think. Like, you would think that at this point, after hearing him say so many times in so many ways, I'm giving you the land, I'm giving you the land, you can possess it, you are to possess it, I'm going to drive them out, you will go in and they will flee before, I mean, over and over and over again. But every time he tells them something about the land, he makes the reminder to them that he's giving it to them. Why? Because when they go into the land, they're supposed to go into the land understanding, not we're going here to try to figure out if this is possible. You're not going into life trying to figure out if maybe what God said is actually possible. If that's the way you're approaching life, you've already lost before you've gone into the land because there will be something you see there that will change your mind if your heart isn't already established and your mind's already fixed before you go in. You notice that there was still giants in the land. God didn't say anything about unless there's giants. He just said, I'm going to give you the land. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to drive the people out. And so he says, send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone, a leader among them. And they come back. And they say to him, Thus they told him, Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Remember it said they had to carry back a cluster of grapes and figs and pomegranate on a pole between two men. That's how big a single cluster was. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are all living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. So they, they go there, they look around, they come back, and they say, we did go to the land, and what you said was true. We saw what you said we would see, but. God, we know what you said, but. 
Well, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but. Oh, yeah, I mean, Jesus said that, but. Oh, sure, the, the disciples, but. Oh, the early church, but. We know what you said. We know what you've promised over and over again. But when we went into the land, we allowed what we saw with our eyes to determine what we believed, rather than letting what we believed determine what we saw with our eyes. I know it's this thing of like, it sounds so crazy to say this, but the truth of the matter is, is we're called to live by faith. And that's not like a rhetorical statement of like, oh yeah, the just will live by faith. To just throw out there as if it's this lofty goal that no one will ever really come up to, but for some reason God decided to put it in his word. Like, like well, you know, yeah, I mean, no, we'll not actually live that way. But, you know, he, he wanted to put something out there so that, you know, it, it's like that, that little sign at a baseball game that says, like, hit this dot and win this thing, and no one's ever going to hit that dot and win that thing. But it's nice that it's out there. It's cool that there's this goal out there that, that, that I guess is technically possible, but not, he said, like, not, not the just could live by faith, or the superstars of Christianity will live by faith, or the pastors, or the prophets, or the evangelists, or the teachers, um, uh, that, that they're all going to live by faith. No, he said the just live by faith. He says here in Hebrews, make sure this doesn't happen to you the way it happened to them. Make sure that you don't just hear good news but not actually unite it with faith, not actually believe it and let it change the way that you think, the way that you see, the way that you hear, and the way that you live. Don't be someone that can walk around telling people the promises of God, but not believing them for yourself. Don't be someone that walks around believing the promises of God for everybody else, but not believing it for yourself. And here's the difference because the 10 said, we went there, we saw the good stuff, but, and then they gave their reasons, as if God forgot that those people were going to be there when he told them he was going to give them the land. Caleb quiets the people before Moses, verse 30, and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will surely overcome it. You notice that the people who don't believe actually have more knowledge. They know the names and the regions. Sometimes you spent so much time studying something that you actually have talked yourself out of what the simple truth that was in front of you all along said. You remember when David wanted to go fight Goliath? All the ones who didn't dare to walk into the valley knew how much his spearhead weighed, how long his spear was, how big his shield was, how long he'd been fighting for, where he came from, how old and tall he was, how heavy his armor was, how large his... They knew, all, they knew every... Sometimes the people that know everything know so much that they've convinced themselves out of a simple truth that is this. That all might all be true, but here's what God said. 
I'm not against educating ourselves and learning things. I'm saying make sure that your education isn't costing you the ability to actually trust and believe what God's saying. Make sure that you don't become so wise in your own mind that you have all kinds of reasons that would negate what this word of God clearly says. Because here's the truth. None of the knowing the tribes and none of knowing the regions and none of knowing who they were and whose sons they were, none of that should have made a difference when God said, here's the land that I'm going to give you. At that point, like knowing that stuff is fine. But why do you know it? Do you know it because you're saying, oh, this is going to be amazing? Just wait till you see what God does because, and you have all this information, and you put it out there and you say, here's what, it, here's what I'm looking at, but God. Wow, this is going to be incredible because this is what people are saying. See, when we were in the hospital with Aaliyah, I, I was at, me and Patty were in different places, and it's not right or wrong, it's different personalities. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know everything. I learned everything I possibly could about what was going on with her and the science behind it and the way the body worked. I wanted to know it all. I questioned every nurse continually, and I would just tell them, if you get tired of me talking, just tell me to be quiet because I'm going to talk until you do. And, and I don't think any of them told me to be quiet, and probably because of the situation we were in, they didn't dare to. They're like, if this makes this guy feel better, that's fine. But, but some of them actually had an interest in teaching stuff, and they would teach me. And the things that they would teach me would stack up on this side. But not once did any one of those things shake the belief that I had the day that we showed up at the hospital, and that was this, she will be fine. She will make a full recovery. None of those things that I saw, so none of those came at the expense of what God said. It didn't shake my faith. It didn't make me go, oh man, if I would have known this, I wouldn't have believed that. It just made me go, wow, God, the testimony that's going to come from her life when she walks out of here is going to be incredible, and here's all the reasons why. I don't care if you want to study everything and learn everything as long as it doesn't talk you out of the knowledge of the simple truth that God spoke over your life. But when it gets to a place where what you're seeing and what you're knowing starts to make you turn your back on a clearly spoken promise of God, it may be time to stop educating yourself in the world and start actually returning and reading and saying, but what did God say? Because the two don't oppose each other. In fact, one makes the other even more glorious. And so, so we see Joshua and Caleb. It's, it's real simple. We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. What made Caleb so sure of this? Was it that he didn't see the thing that all the other spies saw? Was it that he didn't understand whose sons they were? Or, or that they were Nephilim, or that the cities, and maybe, maybe Caleb just didn't know, you know how tactics work, and he didn't understand how fortified the cities were, and how high the castle walls were, and, and how many of them there were, and how few of them there were. Maybe he was in denial. No, he actually tells us exactly why. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6, here's the answer. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning me and you in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. He said, listen, 
I went there and spied out the land, but the report that I gave had nothing to do with what I saw and had everything to do with what was already in my heart. And he says, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Caleb even equates actually having his heart settled in a matter because of the word that God spoke as following God. There's a part of following Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. There's a part of following him that requires that there's something established in my heart that's greater than anything that I would see. And that I actually live this way. Not, not just when it's easy, not just when everything's going good, but that I actually have the same thing in my heart when things are challenging as I had in my heart when things are at their best. And I'm not shaken and tossed to and fro like a man on the seas. I'm not shaken like a reed being blown about by the wind. And every time something happens, my, my well-being and what I believe is determined by what's going on around me. Caleb said, listen, I, why do you think Caleb had so few words? They come back and start explaining why they can't, how big and how tall and how fortified and who and whose sons and what regions. And Caleb just says, we should just go take it because we can. We should just go take it because we can. He says, they've shown you everything in the land. I'll just show you what's in my heart. They've just told you and showed you everything in the land. I'll just show you what's in my heart. We should go take it because we can. I'm just going to close out with this. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And if back then he required that when a promise of his was made, that it actually changed the way we think and changed the way we saw and changed the way that we live, I'm pretty sure that Hebrews is telling us, make sure that you guys don't live the way the Israelites lived. Make sure that you guys actually put your faith in what you've heard and live like it's true rather than putting your faith in everything else and coming up with reasons why what God said couldn't possibly be true. Because you realize this is what the Israelite spies, the ten, were doing. They all heard the same reading of the word of God in Leviticus that said every one of these spies would have been there. This was just prior to this. Every one of them heard it said, heard God say, when you go into the land, I'm going to drive them out. I'm giving you this land, and you are to possess it. Every one of them heard that same exact thing. Ten out of twelve. Hear what God says. And know what God says, and carry around what God says, but their trust is only as fragile as what they see. And so God's given us commands in the new covenant. And one of them that I love, I love every command he gives because every command he gives is an indication that there's a grace available to actually walk in what he's commanded. 
He's not a frustrating father that gives commands. I would never, ever, ever tell Jackson and Aaliyah to pick up the car and put it in the driveway. They aren't capable. I would only ever ask them to do things that they were capable of doing. So he gives us his spirit. Now he's confident that anything he asks we're capable of. Because with man alone, apart from the spirit, it's impossible. But with God, with the spirit of God inside of me, all things are possible. So you could pick up this church if he told me to. See, there's a context for everything. It's, it's not this name it, claim it, uh, you know, oh, okay, well, with God, all things are possible. God, I want to check for a million dollars in my mailbox when I get home today. That's, that's not even the context, and you don't, it's just a revelation that when you hear a promise of God, the first thing you think about is your own want rather than, okay, God, if you gave me this promise, there must be a reason for it. What is it that you've placed your spirit inside of me to accomplish? Then I seek his will and know that everything he calls me to in the process of seeking his will, I'm capable of doing because he placed his spirit inside of me for just that reason. So when you read a command in the New Testament, don't ever take it as a heavy thing. Take it as an invitation. Take it as a promise. And then go seek out where, what it is that maybe would confront that because there's a promise in the word that confronts everything that would come against what he tells you. I promise you there is. He says in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Listen, he doesn't give it a caveat. He doesn't say be anxious for nothing except for, and then fill in the, the, the blank with the biggest thing that you've experienced. And he doesn't say be anxious for nothing unless, it doesn't say or or but, there's, there's just be anxious for nothing. But, so instead of anxiety, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then here comes the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he says, listen, don't be anxious over anything. Who, who's ever struggles with anxiety? Yeah, sinner. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm joking. No, but listen. The, the word says be anxious over nothing, and then it tells you the way to be anxious over nothing. It says, so instead of anxiety, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known before the Father. How do you find yourself thankful in a situation that should cause anxiety? How are you instructed to give thanks in a situation that would cause anxiety? It's this one thing. There's a promise from God that speaks to the thing that's trying to make you anxious. And whether you see it in the moment or not doesn't matter because you, by faith, believe that what he said is greater than what you see. And so you, it looks like this. It looks like my little girl in a coma and the outlook not being good, and me turning and going to his word and, and finding a promise in Psalm 91 that says this, he will call upon me and I will answer him. Right there, I have peace. I don't have anxiety because I believe that he is truthful. I believe that he's faithful. I believe that he means what he says. So he said, they will call, he will call upon me and I will answer him. So I'm already assured that the answer has come. I can start thanking him right then. 
before I see the first change on that screen. In fact, before I see the change go worse, before it starts to get better, I can start thanking him. And in the middle of it getting worse, I can thank him even more because the worse it gets, the greater the victory is going to be when it comes. I promise you, listen, and this is not something I had to work up. This wasn't like, oh, I'm a pastor, I better do this or people aren't going to believe what I say. This was, God, there's nothing else but you. What else would I do? Whom have I but you? He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Right there, anxiety. Can't stay because he said he'll be with me. He's with me. All of a sudden, my my mind is now on the fact that God is with me, that I'm not there alone sitting next to that bed, that he's with me, the God of the universe, the one who perfectly knit together Aaliyah in Patty's womb is actually sitting with me. He says, I will rescue him and honor him. So that's already settled. And with long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And I would sit there and I would tell God, God, I thank you that that promise is true for me and that it's true for my little girl. And that with long life, you will satisfy her and let her see your salvation. God, I thank you that that day is coming. That's how you take anxiety and turn it into thanksgiving. And the peace of God suddenly comes and starts to guard your heart and your mind because you're not trying to work up something. You're reminding yourself of something that he has already promised. You're not trying to make something happen in a moment. You're believing something that was already made long ago. The Israelites weren't there to see if they could. They were there to look at the land so that they would be able to say, okay, when we go there, when we take the land, here's how we're going to do it. There's a difference in going to look to see if what God said is true or going to look because you believe that what he said is true. And it's what you carry in your heart. Caleb said, I came back and I gave a report based on what was in my heart. In other words, I went there convinced. What I saw had nothing to do with whether I was convinced or not. Just let me know, that's the land I want. And so, I just want to say this, if you struggle with anxiety, or any of the other things that God says not to in the new covenant, there's a lot of commands in the new covenant. There's a lot. The beautiful thing about this new covenant is that it's not a requirement for you. It's a promise of who you can be, yielded and submitted to him. When it's not you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. It's a revelation of his heart and his desire for your life. It's not a taunt and a challenge. It's a promise. It's an assurance. Seek out in the word the answer to the thing that's making you anxious and then believe it and put faith in it to the point that you start thanking him before you see anything change because you're now living by what he said rather than what you see. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that it's your heart today just as it was for the children of Israel, that we would actually take what you say and believe it to the point where it changes the way that we see things, God, that we can't even look at something the same because of the knowledge of your truth that we carry, because of the faith that we have in our heart that you are who you say you are, and you'll do what you say you'll do. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for for not one person in here being anxious for anything, but that you would bring them, God, in your word to a place where you can say, this is who I am, and this is who I promised to be, so you can start thanking me now and believing that you'll see me be that. I 
thank you for your grace, God, that you're not holding this again. God, that, that, that where once a mistake could keep someone from something forever, God, that a mistake just voids our ability to live in it in that moment, but that your mercies are new every single day. And the moment that our faith unites with what you've spoke, God, we're immediately brought into that place of your rest. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.